The New Testament is extremely countercultural in upholding the dignity and value of women. It is not saying that wives are to submit to their husbands because they are somehow inferior. 2,000 years before women rose up in the 60s demanding their rights, 2,000 years before that, Jesus, the King of all, declared women their rights. Jesus and the Father are totally equal. Yet let me ask you another question. Who submits to whom? The relationship between God the Son and God the Father provides the foundation for the relationship between wife and husband. This is an invitation into the heart of Jesus because Jesus doesn't call on wives to do something that he has not already done. I don't know uh, about you, but I've really enjoyed the last four weeks. Um, it was just, it was fun to sit there and just watch. I, I, sometimes I forget, like, how blessed as a church we are to just have these guys that get up, they love the scriptures, they love Jesus, and they can't wait to come up and tell you uh, what God's done in their life. So in, like, just, I hope the last few weeks have been uh, as good for you as they were for me. Um, one of the things that we do, just to kind of let you know, one of the reasons we kind of have different people come up is... Um, my heart is to make sure that Cornerstone um, hears from other guys that just really know Scripture and love God. Um, we, we meet every Tuesday. We talk through what we're going to be preaching on. We pray about it. We talk about it. We, we give input to each other. And so in other words, when somebody gets up here, the thing that I appreciate about it is our heart is that we want the text. We want, we want you to get this. Our heart is that the text would be right, but our, also our heart is that you would understand it. So, so much of our heart behind what we're doing is to truly make sure that what you're hearing to the best of our ability is what God wants you to hear, uh, specifically from the Word. And so anyways, that's kind of what we do. And, and so uh, uh, just if you're ever wondering why uh, we kind of had that little time period of different guys getting up, that was kind of the heart behind it. But um, let me just pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into the, the text this morning. Father, I believe uh, you're a great God. You are good all the time. You, uh, you bless us in the heavenlies in ways that we can't even comprehend with our little minds. And out of that blessing uh, comes the opportunity you've given us to be a blessing to this world. And so, Father, I pray today that as we talk about wives, that they would see and know and hear how much it is you've blessed them and calling them uh, to uniquely be wives, but also to display you to a lost and a dying world. Please help us in your precious name. Amen. All right, for those of you that maybe are, are new, what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And in going through the book of Ephesians, our heart in it is that you would understand, and we've said this from the beginning, three very important things. And here they are, just to repeat them. Number one is this. The centerpiece of the book of Ephesians is Jesus. You cannot read this letter without being blown away by the reality of how Paul just centers in in this powerful way and makes sure that you don't miss the reality of Jesus in this letter. He's, he's very, very practical about it. He makes sure that we understand 
that, that, that Jesus Christ and his role as the one who is conquering over this, the demonic forces, the dark forces of this world, this King Jesus, that the means by which he did it was so special and so unique that it happened at a cross and it happened at a tomb. It happened the day he ascended to the Father. It happened when he sent down gifts to men so that uniquely now not only he would be this one who is confronting these dark forces, but we know he pulled all of us in this room that know Jesus out of that lost and dying world and he handed to us that same message. That these dark forces that he's seeking to overcome, his fullness, it talks about in Ephesians 1.23, he wants his fullness to come to bear on this world. And the means by which he does it is by saving these people, chapter 2, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, male, female, it doesn't matter. He's just pulling together this conglomeration of people that will proclaim who he is to a lost and a dying world. And the other thing I don't want you to miss that is so important to this, that he's seeking to bring his fullness to bear because we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. All around us right now, there are things happening to which we have no clue, but we're in the middle of it. But being in the middle of it, the thing that I love about the book of Ephesians, while it's this battle that we're in and it's costly and it has ramifications, just the one thing you cannot miss is King Jesus wins. In the end, we know that he sorts all things out. And when he sorts all things out, and it says even too there, when he's finally defeated sin and Satan and death, not just at the cross and the tomb, but that one just conclusive moment when he stands in front of God the Father and throws everything that was wrong that stood up against him into the lake of fire, we will enter into a place that is so unique and so different. And that's Ephesians. And in the midst of all of that, you follow the train down through there, and everything funnels into finally, in chapter 5, verse 18, he talks about this idea of this group of people filled by the Spirit, filled with the fullness of God, that can't wait to tell a lost and a dying world, you've got to understand who I'm following. He says, in fact, you're going to sing it. Not only are you going to sing it, but you're going to be thankful. And this one word that he throws in there in 521 that is so important is that you will be this group of people that submits to one another in fear of Christ. That the outcome of God coming to bear in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit is, is we'll be this group of people that we will mutually, and the idea of submit together is willingly place ourselves under. Because we understand that we're like our Savior. We're like our Savior Jesus who who had no problem, though he was, it talks about in Philippians 2, he was this one that was to be exalted. He lowered himself, and in lowering himself, it says the means by which God the Father exalted him was out of that lowering of himself so that we understand that the posture of a group of people that are filled by the fullness of God, a group of people filled by the Spirit, is our posture, is we don't care getting low because our Savior did. And if need be, we will go even lower. But he lands all of that. He takes all this just massive amounts of theology. And the way you can see it is is he just works it and works it. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, he talks about it just being this this amazing reality whereby which now we are to live a, a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In other words, all this theology is supposed to come up here. And the place that it lands, the place where God wants to uniquely take on that angelic realm, those dark forces that are headed by Satan, the place that he wants to the land that is inside of the home. And the way Preston put it, I thought he nailed it, is that the evil one, what he wants to do is to get inside that home. He wants to wiggle inside of it. And once he gets inside of that home, 
Preston used these words that were graphic but great. He will gut that family from the inside out. That's what's going on here. And when he talks to husbands and wives in this first section, the one thing he wants to make sure that they understand is the means by which God is going to combat them is through marriages. And right now, let me tell you something. Marriages are scaring me to death. We live in a nation where it's about 50% of the people or so a little over 50% of the people are getting divorced. The scarier part about that is is that the number of Christians, those claiming to know Jesus, and I don't know their denomination and all that other stuff, I just know there's groups of people that claim to know Jesus is at a higher percentage than those not. Now, I know some of you have been through the horrors of divorce and you've felt the ramifications of it, but how in the world can two people who know Jesus ever get to the point that they would do that? And I'm sure some of you have asked the same thing. How did I get here? But what Paul wants to make sure that we land is that it is so important. And those of you that are sitting here that aren't married, if you're someone that's not married, let me tell you something. What I'm about to talk to is about is so essential. Because if the means by which Jesus is going to confront a lost and a dying world is through healthy marriages, that means that every one of us in here, all the marriages matter. Every last one of the marriages in this room matter. And it's something that because Jesus is fighting for good marriages, his church should be fighting for good marriages. His church should be going to town on this reality that if that is the means by which not only the dark forces are confronted, but by whereby which people come to know Jesus Christ, it should matter that every marriage in here is important to what Jesus Christ is accomplishing on this earth. And into it, Last week, Preston laid out this idea that the means by which Jesus is going to battle. And he talks about first, well, he talked about second, but he talked about husbands. The means by which this battle is going to take place, the the command that, that he's given for husbands to love their wives entails this responsibility, regardless of the wife's behavior, regardless of the wife's health condition, appearance, or anything else. We don't fall in love, so therefore we don't fall out of love because it's not about falling in love because love has been placed in us. And so therefore, there's no such thing as falling out of love. How can you fall out of something that you never fell into in the first place? While we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. It's not that we loved first, but what? He loved us first. It also has within it this idea of the fact that Christ loved the church, even in her most unlovely and unbecoming state. That is the model to which men are to follow that have wives. And I heard the terrible statement this week, and it just, oh, it drove me up the wall. I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, it just, a guy came up to me, and he said, yeah, I just don't love her anymore. I was quiet on the phone. He said, are you there? And I said, yeah, I'm there, but you're not there. He used the idea of Hosea, the God telling Hosea, you want to learn to love Israel like I do? Go marry a prostitute and love her. And to the wives, he threw another unique thing out. It's, it's a reality that was learned from Jesus, this idea, this one who is king of kings and lord of lords, who came to earth, embodied himself in flesh, came and submitted himself, even submitting himself to the point of death on the cross. So therefore, calling women within this church inside of marriage to submit is not a big thing for him because he understands submission. 
He understands this coming underneath another. And the idea behind submission is, and I love the way that Preston put it, he said, submission demands a cross-shaped readiness to renounce one's own will for the sake of others, regardless of what it is. And Paul was writing into this thing. It's, there, was the, there was a Latin word, paterfamilias, uh, which literally what it meant was, is the husband is ruler. And he said, wife, go into that. And like Jesus did, you go in regardless and you just submit. Even in the most difficult situations, wife, because Jesus can and because you have the spirit, you can. But the aim of this passage, and it's so important, you can go go ahead and go to Ephesians 5. The aim of this passage that I don't want anyone to miss is in Ephesians 5, it's all about Jesus. It's about Jesus and something else that he connects this, and you'll see this all the way through. He talks about husbands and wives, but the way that he constantly relates it is Jesus and the church. In other words, he is going to intimately connect together the reality of marriage and the reality of Jesus and the church in such a way that you cannot disconnect the two. If you see one, you see the other. And so therefore, what he's about to do and then carrying out this idea of connecting all of Scripture together is he's going he's to help us to understand that the means by which we confront these dark forces is as the couples act like the church and Christ in this world. It's a model, and we're to follow it. Ephesians 5.27 talks about this idea that, that while we are this group of people that are be uniquely betrothed to Jesus, this unique group of people that are betrothed to Jesus have a characteristic. It's like a marriage. It's that when Jesus married the church, uh, they was betrothed to him, and the day that he comes back, he will, he will then take them back to be with him. It's this idea, that's what I want marriage, and, and I want it to look like. I want husbands to look like Jesus, and I want wives to look like the church. And the place that he's going to bring this fullness to bear, we talked about, is inside of the home. And oftentimes what happens is is we don't understand why things happen the way they do in the home, but the idea that the Bible gives us is everything that happens inside of the home has its foundation way back in what happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis 1, it's so fascinating, the way in 26, God, the Father, has just spoke everything into existence, and then all of a sudden he has this moment in day 6 where he says, I'm going to create something unique. I'm going to create man in my image. And he talks about it in our image. Then he says, we will create man and woman, male and female. In other words, when he created, he didn't just create man. He created with man, woman, which is a phenomenal concept. And when he connected them together, those two working together are the means by which that an accurate representation of God as far as an, an image is shown to the world. In other words, man and woman were required of one another. Why do I know that? Because look, look at Genesis 2.5. Just go back to Genesis 2. Keep your finger in Ephesians 5. Why do I know that it needed both to be accurate of who God is? Look at verse 5. It says this. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed. Now, Adam's chilling in the garden, and he's all alone. 
And we come to it in verse 15. Now all of a sudden we learn what he was doing. In verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it. So he's working and he's keeping it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It's not good that the man should be alone. Key. In order to represent God well, he says it is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because he needed someone to help out with the work? No. He wanted to do something so different and so much bigger than that. And that's why it says in here, I will make him a helper. And I love this word, how it's phrased in here, fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and I love this, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. Can you imagine being there? Dog, cat, horse, cow. I mean, it was just an elephant. I mean, who would have ever thought the name hippopotamus, right? Like all of a sudden, here comes the hippopotamus, and he goes, huh, hippopotamus. It's just this thing in which, can you imagine being there? And it showed an authority. In other words, God brought these, these ones in front of him. And in each of them, God was showing him, none of these are made for you. None of these complete you. Now, probably when he got to the dog, he thought, huh. Well, that's not bad. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed it up in place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had made, taken from the man, and he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Like, I love this. Can you imagine? He wakes up. He's been sleeping for a little while. He's just watched dogs and all these other things go in front of him. And he's like, really, God, more of this? And then all of a sudden, the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And I love if you were to say this in Hebrew, she shall be called Isha. I mean, that sounds better than woman. Isha. Because she was taken out of Ish, man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The whole foundation of everything that Paul's going to talk about in regards, especially these household codes that we talked about, finds its foundation in the reality of what God started eons ago and in beginning with this man and this woman and putting them in a garden but we also know that the ramifications that took place was in chapter 3 Eve was deceived and Eve being deceived we know that what came from that now was the fall of man in which the man who was not supposed to obey his husband or his wife obeyed his wife the two ate of it and forever everything was changed You see this in verse 16, this idea of now Eve is going to have childbirth. She was already going to have childbirth, but now all of a sudden her pain would be multiplied. The other way he puts it at the end of 16 and the beginning of 17 is for the first time we were going to have the battle of the sexes. 
And when Paul writes in Ephesians, the things he wants to understand, all of us to understand is, is that the means by which we are going to overcome the curse, the means by which we are going to defeat Satan is as groups of people that are called out, that are empowered by the Spirit, as this group of people now lives and they combat Satan through regaining what was lost in the garden. In other words, what God wants to do amongst men and women is to put them back in the order to which he had designed them to be about. Before this had all got marred, before now all of a sudden men and women are squabbling over who's this and who's that and rights and demeaning women and all the things that have happened throughout all of history, God wants to see this group of people, the church that empowered by his spirit, enter back into this time in which he had designed them to be. And Paul uses now this metaphor. Go to Ephesians 5. Look what he does with this metaphor. See, way back when, when God created, Paul's going to call this a mystery. Look at verse 31, chapter 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, automatically we go, oh, that's speaking about marriage. That's something referenced way back into Genesis 2, this idea of them becoming one. But then look what he says here in verse uh, 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is he talking about? That means when he created men and women way back in the garden, the thing that Paul helps us to understand is is that God had a way bigger plan than just the husband and wife being married. He had something whereby which he was going to one day form together, which was Christ and the church. This was just the smaller. This was going to be the greater. He talks about this idea of a mystery. You see it in chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, you also see it in chapter 6, verse 19. This idea of the mystery is, is it was something that wasn't revealed before, but now that Jesus has come, his whole point is now we've got something all new. And he's going to intimately connect together Jesus and the church and marriage And he's going to connect them together in such a way that literally if you've seen Jesus in the church, you should have seen marriages that are godly. And if you've seen marriages that are godly, you've seen Jesus in the church. See, we're not just fighting for marriages. You've got to hear me out here. Inside of the church right now, we are not just fighting for marriages. We are fighting for the name of Jesus in regards to him and his church. The reason that divorce is so hated by God, the reason that God can't stand divorce is something so much bigger than us because divorce represents something that he intends to never happen, which is the parting of Jesus and his church. When two people get divorced, what they're saying is, is who cares about Jesus and the church? You've got to understand something. Marriage is bigger than us. If you're somebody in this room right now, and I don't know any of you, I just know I've got to believe the statistics, which means there's some of you in this room that are actually considering divorce, and you've got to understand something. You can't. Marriage is bigger than you. And in being bigger than you, the thing I'm talking about is is that divorce has within it the means of of absolutely demeaning Jesus and the church. God has so connected them that way. And the metaphor that he uses to put this all together explains this. And all throughout the text, Paul's using simile all throughout chapter 5, but when he comes to this section in 31 through 32, he drops all simile to make sure that we understand that, that marriage and the church and Jesus Christ, all that is connected together in a very intimate way. 
In fact, one person put it this way, and I love this. He said, those of us who are married need to ponder again and again how mysterious and wonderful it is that we are granted by God the privilege to image forth stupendous defined realities infinitely bigger and greater than ourselves. Let me read it again. Those of us who are married need to ponder again and again how mysterious and wonderful it is that we are granted by God the privilege to image forth stupendous divine realities infinitely bigger and greater than ourselves. It's not our marriage. It's a model to the world of Jesus and the church. In fact, this, this idea gets played out all throughout the Old Testament, this idea of connecting God and, and it's a sort of a marriage-type relationship, and he connects himself to Israel. You see him do this last week when, when, when Preston talks about this idea of Hosea and, and the prostitute. He connected him that way, but you also see in the book of Isaiah, the book of, uh, of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16. But the other place that you see it is in Jeremiah 2, and in Jeremiah 2, in fact, he talks about himself being this God that was betrothed to Israel. And he says, I remember what it was like when we first knew each other. But then he, he walks through this idea that they totally forsook him. They went after other gods. And the thing that God is going to get after Israel on is this two things. And we're going to see this again and again throughout the text we're about ready to do. They focused their finding. The big issue is, is that they focused not on his leadership and not on his ability to provide. They went to other things to find other leadership and other provision. You'll see that. In fact, the way he says it in 2.13 is you've forsaken me, the fount of living water, the one that provides for you. Now what's going to happen is, is this thing gets built and built until finally you come to this idea in chapter 5 that when we talk about submission, you're going to start to understand that the thing that husbands and wives have to do with one another is that the husband is to be a leader, number one, and he's to be a provider. And we're going to lay that out in just a little bit. He's to be a leader and he's to be a provider. And the thing that Paul is going to ask wives to do, even if their husband is an unbeliever, Peter's going to do this, is he wants the wife in submission to come underneath the husband and to accept his leadership and to accept his providing. Now, don't think providing just money alone, okay? Don't go there. It's something so much bigger than that. Now, why do I say that? Look at verse 23, and let's kind of play this out. Chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife... Even as, or sim, there's a simile there, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So coming off verse 22, he's going to lay out this idea of submission, and now he's going to use this word for to explain it, chapter 23. For, and now he's going to help us understand, submission is like headship. Now we see this idea of head. Go with me back to chapter 1. Look at verse 22. He's going to talk about this idea of head. And here's the first example he gives of it. The first one in verse 22, and he put all things under Christ's feet and he gave him as head or leader over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the first one. Go with me to chapter four. Look at verse 15. Not only now is he going to deal with this idea of authority or leadership, but now in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the, here's our word, head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the next one is, is for growth and provision. 
So the way that Paul is going to define this idea of headship using just the book of Ephesians, and that's what you got to do whenever you're studying a letter of the Bible, if you can find other instances of it in the text that you're looking at, you use those to help you decide, man, what is Paul talking about? There's other people that have other definitions of this particular term, but they don't tend to take into account this idea of what Paul's doing earlier. What he's saying is, is when it comes to Christ and the church, and he's going to compare it to the husband and the wife, I want Christ to be the leader, and I want him to be this unique provider or this sustainer, this one that provides growth. And then what he's going to say to the church is, is I want you to willingly come underneath Christ, and none of us have a problem with that. And when he connects this simile, he says, I want this same thing to happen. I want the wife to uniquely come underneath him, not because she has to, but because she wants to, because she wants to model the church to the world in its acceptance of its provision and the acceptance of leadership. Now, what he's going to do from this is so key. The body or the wife finds her place in this mystery by taking her cue from the church. In other words, wives that are in here, the thing that you've got to look at if you want to understand your role in the world is to understand what does God want the church to do? And out of this text, that's what it says, receive it. And as the church is submissive to Christ, now what happens? The wife now aligns herself with and is disposed to allow her husband to lead and nourish her. In fact, you're going to see this idea of nourishment later on. Look at chapter 5, verse 29. It's the call of the husband. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The wife is to willingly come underneath that. And the way that she comes underneath that is, is what it's supposed to do, and we're going to use this word here, is it creates within them an interdependency. They need one another. See, because while Preston talked about this last week, this is so key, he talked about this idea of basically the way women were just squashed in that culture. But right around the turn, right around when Jesus was born, something started to happen inside of Rome. Julius Caesar had been ruling, and and as he started to rule, up from nowhere started to emerge this middle class. And when the middle class started to come to power, you started to see this in various port cities, and Ephesus being one of them, Corinth being another, is that all of a sudden, what started to emerge inside of these cultures was a middle class. Not only did a middle class start to emerge, but women who oftentimes were kept out of leadership slowly started to get put in various leadership circles. And not only did they get put in various leadership circles, but they were involved in various uh, uh, goddess worship and cults in which now these women were starting to get more and more of of a role to play with in the Roman culture. Well, all of a sudden the people started going, have you seen those Christians? Not only do they talk to women, but they let us be a part of them. And so what started to happen is these women started gravitating into this church and they found just the thrill and the joy of the freedom that a culture never provided them. But what always happens in everything is as the pendulum swings, it keeps going what? All the way up here. And what was supposed to be this beautiful interdependence between men and women, suddenly the curse came to bear on that. Well, now all of a sudden, now what used to be the oppression, the the, the way in which we made Uh, creation looked bad through men pushing down is all of a sudden women, the idea was they exited their role and they started to go do their thing. And Paul said, it can't be that way because how you fulfill your role is how we combat all the dark forces. You've got to play your role. 
It's not a role that is a bad thing. It's a role that was demonstrated to you by Jesus, that you're modeling the beauty of this church that's betrothed to Jesus. You've got to play your role because in this, the world needs to see this. What came from it after that was just this idea of an independence that was just run rampant. But Paul saw something different. He didn't want to see independence. He wanted to see this interdependence and this profound interdependence that encompasses all facets of life. In fact, one lady, I was just reading an article that she put out. I don't know how many of you know. Was it last month or this month, Women's History Month? Nobody knows. Right? <laughs> Way to pay attention. I didn't know either. But a lady named Mary Cassian, and I might be butchering her name, on March 29th wrote a, 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 a little article. And it says, Hear Me Roar. And it's musing on Women's History Month. Let me just read it to you. It's, it's a little bit longer, but I, I really want you to hear what she read about this idea of independence. I remember striding down the hallway arm in arm with a couple of middle school girlfriends beating out the words of Helen Reddy's 1972 chart-topping song. The words of the song summed up our resolve. We are strong. We are invincible. We are women. We are going to roar in numbers too big to ignore. No man was ever going to keep us down. We were perched on the verge of womanhood, and we were confident that we would be the first generation to get the meaning of womanhood right. Our generation tried. We really did. We embraced education, careers, prominence. We despised all relationships and responsibilities that would hold us back. We moved marriage, mothering, homemaking from the top of our list to the bottom or crossed them off altogether. After all, we were so much more enlightened than our four sisters were. The world had revolved around men, but it was now our turn. We would make it bow to our demands. We decided that the role of housewife was totally passe. Charlie's angels seemed to be more exciting. So we redefined boundaries. We changed the rules of male-female relationships. We became loud, demanding, aggressive. We boldly pushed back against traditional definitions of gender and sexuality. We claimed our freedoms. We traded in the leave-it-to-beaver model of womanhood for sex in the city one. We bought into the feminist promise that woman would find happiness and fulfillment when she defined her own identity, decided for herself what life as a woman was all about. How very wrong we were. For ultimately, our identity is a matter decided not by us, but by the one who in the beginning created us male and female. It's obvious that the Leave it to Beaver model of womanhood, having a husband, a station wagon full of kids, a house in the burbs, and every possible modern appliance didn't bring woman the happiness she desired either. As an old archive 1972 Time Magazine article lamented, by all rights, the American woman today should be the happiest in history. She is healthier than U.S. women have ever been, better educated, more affluent, better dressed, more comfortable, wooed by advertisers, pampered by gadgets. But there's a worm in the apple. She is restless in her familiar familial role, no longer quite content with the homemaker wife mother part in which her society has cast her. Last year, Time Magazine devoted an entire issue to the state of the American woman. Writers were confounded by the evidence, tracked by numerous surveys, that as women have gained more education, more economic independence, more power, and more freedom, they have become less and less happy. Ironically, they are unhappier now than when the feminist movement set about to solve the problems of women's unhappiness. The modern ideal for womanhood is even less fulfilling than the one it replaced. So should we try to rewind the tape and try to squeeze every woman back into Leave it to Beaver? No. We can't hope to get womanhood right until we understand the ultimate object to which it points. 
When God created male and female, he provided an object lesson, a parable, as it were, of an entire redemptive plan. Men are to reflect the strength, love, and sacrifice of Christ. Women are to reflect the character, grace, and beauty of the bride he redeemed. Ultimately, womanhood exists to help display the masterpiece of God. The implications are staggering. This places womanhood at the center of God's ultimate purpose. It endows it with the supernatural significance and meaning that it deserves. It provides woman with a framework to understand what her life is all about, what she should value, how to make choices to align. Time, culture, and circumstances change, but the Bible provides an enduring model for womanhood that goes far beyond a stereotyped cookie-cutter list of behaviors. History proves that women's happiness is not found in pursuing the current cultural ideal, but that doesn't mean it's an elusive goal. My woman's history and the history of a multitude of sisters who have loved Jesus Christ testifies to the fact that happiness of the deep, lasting kind can be found in pursuing the one to whom true womanhood points. In other words, what she's saying is is that everybody went after it only to come up empty. Paul, what he's trying to do is, and with building this idea of this beautiful bride of Jesus, is he's looking at all the wives and saying in this big parable to which she called, that's the role that you're playing. The role in this gigantic thing that God is carrying out, you've got to understand, you need to play that role and you need to play it well because the defeating of dark forces, the gospel going forward all over the world, it begins with women not only owning that role but making that role unique and special to which now all of a sudden when people look at husbands and wives, what they see is they see the beauty of the church. A guy wrote this. He said, The majesty of a woman is of such nature that she complements man with an incomparably richer reality which is irreplaceable. It goes back to the garden. The two have to go together. Now, ultimately, everything comes from God. But the thing I see over and over are people fighting the role to which God's called them. When the Spirit of God empowers a man, he empowers him uniquely to take on that role. And when we talk about provider, it doesn't make the woman weak. When we talk about this idea of being a leader, it doesn't make the woman weak. In fact, what we talked about last week is, is when Jesus became that, it didn't make him weak. In fact, it made him a demonstration of his strengths. And so how often is this supposed to take? Look at verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, he's going to say this statement. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The term everything there is this idea that it simply means not acting independently of her husband, but but instead joyfully choosing to join him, choosing to to come underneath him and and to gain not an, an old dream of his or an old dream of hers, but this new dream given to them by God, whereby which they now model to the world the accuracy of who Jesus in the church is. I remember when I came to Christ, I mean, it gave me all new thinking. I don't know how many of you remember, but when I first embraced Jesus, do you remember when all your thinking just changed? I mean, I went from one night, somebody that cared about one thing, to after I embraced Jesus, everything changed. I wanted all new things. But the thing that he's going to talk about here is that when we get married, Christ gives us also new ones. See, to live a single life is you're, you're, you're carrying out in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians this idea of being married uniquely to Christ and to Christ alone. 
But when you get married now, what happens is, is you become these ones that join together to model now not just a, a, a relationship with Jesus, but a relationship of Jesus to his church. That's the new call of life. And I think into this, when we see this word everything, some questions start to pop up. So are you saying to me then that if I'm supposed to follow my husband into everything, even when he sins? And the answer is no. The driving force behind this section, if you look back in 521, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for who? Christ. In other words, my submission is intimately connected to this whole idea that if my husband asks me to step outside of this reality of submitting to Christ, I can't do it. In fact, Acts 5.29, I think, is a great thing. When they were standing in front of the rulers, they just said, look, we must obey God rather than people. So in other words, Paul's not asking women to sin, to join their husbands in sinning. In fact, one person put it this way, even where a Christian wife may, uh, where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. The idea is, is that you, when you disobey someone, whether it's the government or even it's inside of a marriage, if that one is asking you to go against God, in fact, you are actually doing a phenomenal thing by not joining them. I also hear people say everything from that, but what if it goes wrong? I remember... Uh, I heard one time somebody say, you know, you need to go get your college education because, well, you know, like what if your husband leaves you? That's positive. (laughs) But the pastor that discipled me when I kind of first got into ministry, he said, the thing that I do with couples is, is I try to work with them in such a way that it makes it hard to call it quits. He says, what I try to do is I try to take everything in which they try to separate from themselves and get into their own camps and create senses of independence, and I try to collide them together. That means with money. That means with raising kids. That means with intimacy. That means with shared priorities. I grab everything, and I ask them to intimately tie those things together because the whole goal that God is seeking to do in the marriage is to create this fabulous interdependence that now it becomes so intertwined you can't pull it apart. And I think that's why, to be honest with you, I think Christians should be the best communicators on the planet. Communication is the means by which we talk to one another through these things. Let me just share with you something. Wives out there, let me, let me apologize on behalf of all the men. Sorry for being bad communicators. because we learn to talk with each other. It's, that's why it's good that God didn't create men and men in the garden to just be this massive fraternity in which nothing would ever be talked about or get done. <laughs> but communication is key. There are some of you in here that have money accounts that you don't share, uh, personalized checking accounts, um, credit card accounts. What that is is a sign of Independence. Something that God doesn't want. He wants interdependence. Not only that, but raising kids. Mom, some of the best things you can teach your kids about obedience is through your own submission. You're not called to obey, but you are called to submit. You can teach your kids what it's like to submit appropriately. Intimacy. Withholding sometimes intimacy from a partner with as a weapon. 
shared priorities. This idea that it's no longer my dream or your dream, it's God's dream. It's fulfilling what God wants us to do and then submitting to that, coming underneath your husband. And I know for some of you, it's not easy. And for some of you, it's easier. But it still doesn't change the fact that what we're doing is we're seeking as this group of people to have an interdependent reality where we're locked together because we understand that our marriage is intimately connected to Jesus and the church. Let me just throw this one in. Submission is this idea of being relational. We need time together. My wife and I were talking about this one, is that when you don't spend time together, you don't have shared stories. Have you ever noticed that? Like the reason you kind of enjoy people, if you haven't been around somebody, I called my friend on the phone and we hadn't seen each other for probably about 15 years, but guess what we started doing? Sharing what? Stories. And we were laughing on the phone, sharing stories about all kinds of different things and then sometimes inside of homes we don't see these shared stories. These things of not only of what's happening in our life, but what God's doing. In other words, you need that time together, and we need to quit like putting kids over here and wives over here and husbands over here. In other words, we need that time together because that time is what begins to lock us together and to give us these shared experiences whereby which God cements in these relationships. And that's the first part of about this idea of combating these dark forces. But look at the end. Look at the last verse. Verse 33. However, let each one love his wife as himself. And then it's going to say this. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The idea is to revere. The point behind it is, and it takes us all the way back to verse 21. It's the same word. It's the one up here in verse 21 is a noun. And the one that we just looked at is a verb. But the whole idea is that it's this idea of respect that comes from reverence for Christ. In other words, that the husband that you have, you understand that it's not, I don't give him respect necessarily because he's earned it or deserves it. I give him that respect because that's who Christ has put over me. It's the same thing we're supposed to have in regards to the, the government authorities that we have over us. We're to, we're to honor them as the ones whom God has placed over us. It was not based upon, like I said, deserving anything. And in fact, I think the hardest thing to do for me as a husband and loving my wife and probably for wives as they submit to their husbands is not talking about your husband when he's not there. In other words, this idea, this is coming up underneath him and and reverencing him and, and, and treating him with this respect is not only to his face, but when nobody's watching. Are you the kind of wife that when you talk about your husband, he is revered? I bring all this stuff up because I desire so much. It's been one of my prayers that house by house by house in Simi Valley, California, we have something happening that's so supernatural, marriages that are working. See, the reason we moved towards what we did, and you know, it wasn't just because we were bored and we didn't have anything to do. The reason that we moved towards what we did and trying to approach getting out with people where they live in their houses, in their neighborhoods, amongst their schools, is because we believe the battle's not fought here, it's fought out there. We get encouraged here and strengthened here, and so I love the fact that we gather together. But I really believe what we've got to do is we've got to help one another to start strengthening marriages And some of you know this. Your marriage stinks and you're trying to hide it from everybody. Quit it. Your marriage matters to all of us here. 
We need for your marriage to work. We're desperate for your marriage to work because it is so connected to Jesus and the church and it affects the testimony that we have in our community. If you're somebody in here that needs help, boy, we would love to help you with your marriage. I know in various communities, we've got people that meet. We, we've got people that will counsel you. And wives, let me just tell you this. And I try to say this about every two months, but I absolutely love you. I love the role that God's called you to. I love that you're a part of this church. I love that you are designed and called by God to demonstrate the most beautiful thing that God possesses, his church. That gives you immense value. And next week when we come back, we're going to try to help the guys understand not how to submit, but how it is that God has called us to love this woman like Jesus loves the church. Amen? All right, Father, thank you so much for this body of people. God, I don't know what is going on with uh, various people's lives in here, but I believe your spirit's powerful, Father. I believe you can take marriages that are good and make them phenomenal. I believe you can even take marriages that are on the edge of falling apart. I've just seen it way too many times and make them incredible. Father, you're powerful, you're able And when you do that, you so mock the angelic realm. And so, Father, I pray right now in this room that you would start to heal marriages. Would you start to allow people to, for husbands to to authentically love their wife like Christ loves the church, to help wives submit like the church does to Jesus? Would, Would you do that in such a way that what would come out of it is just absolute immense joy because they're living as they were designed to live? God, I believe you can do that. Would you please surprise us? In your precious name we pray, amen.